did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I don't think I had, um, I definitely didn't have a very set idea of what I would be when I was grown up. I think um, the closest I ever had at one point of thinking, when, I, when I'm older, I'm going to be, was, uh, this is going to age me quickly, was I thought I might be Sue Barker, the tennis player. Yeah. <laughs> for about 10 minutes so I, I practiced relentlessly with a tennis ball on a string or elastic in fact in the middle of my street when I was growing up and I think it's much the same thing it was being able to wear a good pair of white socks up to your knees that was yeah. partly you know what was going on in my head there yeah. not because she was going out of Cliff Richard I hasten to add although <laughs> that probably proved to me that she really wasn't going out of Cliff Richard but anyway, uh, so those, those are the sort of closest that I've had to an aspiration to be anything or anybody. Mm-hmm. And But if I look back now, I think if the question is, what, what were the roots of what you're doing now in your childhood? Mm. Then I think um, I, as an only child, I had to really make my own entertainment. Mm-hmm. So I grew up on a council estate in the 70s. Mum was working really hard, mm-hmm. single parent. So if I and TV had about three channels and it was black and white. So really, and you know, in more context was that they used to listen to the radio on a Sunday and it used to drive me mad, it was so boring. So a lot of what I have ended up doing in, in a work way, oddly, came from this desire to sort of create entertainment, go out and connect in my community. Wouldn't have used those words, mind you. Uh, get out the house mm-hmm. and in the immortal words, words of a tv show that I think maybe again dates me the um why don't you generation you know watch this program obviously for half an hour and then go and do something that's boring instead so yeah so that is effectively I think the theme tune to my life really which is nothing's gonna happen unless you make it you can create your own fun alone all together and uh, yeah the world's there for you taking really leads 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 what is happening welcome to episode 17 of working hours a show about a place called leads a time called now and an activity called work my name is simon and you're listening to my guest emma Behrman. this is my first zoom interview which i recorded on the 17th of may 2021 emma is the founder of playful anywhere Playful Anywhere, CIC, is a Leeds-based social enterprise with a mission to catalyse creativity, inventiveness and well-being with clients, the public and through their own projects, Playbox, Playlab and Young Inventors Club. Playful Anywhere loves to blur the boundaries between the physical and digital worlds, encouraging participants to get creative with all manner of media, from cardboard to code. You can check out Playful Anywhere at www.playfulanywhere.com fun. If you're a lawyer and you're listening to this and you think you might be able to answer questions that you already know all the answers to, then please get in touch with me to arrange a time for us to record. Email me at workinghourspod at western-studios.com with a short bio and some suggestions of your availability. Also, drop me a line if you have any queries or feedback, complaints, compliments. If you can leave a review for me, then please do. I haven't had any feedback yet, so it would be great to see some. If you can leave a really good review, that would be really good. It's nice to be nice, isn't it? What is it that you're doing now then? <laughs> yeah, so um, there's a so there's a vehicle for this called Playful Anywhere, which is a CIC, which is a community interest company, which 
um, really allows for project-based um, events, activities, commissions and contracts to sort of have some form of either structure really. But so that helps. It's a very small kind of um, not-for-profit. And what that allows us to do really is to um, do place-based play stuff for all ages. So we've got three, well, three shipping containers that are usable and they've been uh, refurbished and turned into what we call play boxes. And they can go out to high streets, to leisure centre, car parks, to parks, anywhere really. Um, and their whole kind of purpose really is to catalyse um, conversations, creativity, fun, play, obviously, uh, and get people enjoying, uh, well, enjoying probably doing things that they didn't know they were going to do until they encountered us. Mm -hmm. um, I'm taking people from a bit of a sort of mindset of what are you going to deliver for us to over time, depending on how long we're in a place, uh, kind of a, a sense of, wow, we can make our own stuff, or I did this, and, you know, that sense of pride and ownership. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do with the shipping containers. We um, have had a record in animating and bringing to life empty shops. Um, so we, we've got one in St John's Centre, which was a play lab until COVID, and now is probably going to be turned into a digital access um, repair shop. Uh, come robots repair lab, as we'd call it. So the sort of underlying principles of all of these things really are how can we do really great fun stuff which invites the widest participation and takes care of some of the reasons why people might not be able to participate in something by really thinking that through as well. So if not having access to the internet is one of your issues, then we need to take care of that. If not having that much money in your pocket is an issue, then we need to make sure that what we do is affordable or free. If uh, not feeling confident is an issue, you know, so we try to look at all, all the reasons why people can't have fun and lead playful, creative lives, and then gently try and design things which doesn't sort of uh, stigmatize anybody. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so sort of like creating access, opening up space for people to to explore their own selves ultimately through play and through the opportunity to play and to create that space to say play you know rather than produce or work or you know just have fun and and find out how to do that because like with anything it's sort of practice isn't it the more you practice at something the better you get yeah and i think play is one of those really weird words that's all the minute you the more you say it the less it means as well so it's like it's also quite alienating as a word to people. It's like play, ugh, that's for kids, isn't it? Or I don't feel playful, I feel too stressed to play. Or um, it, or when you say play, I mean this, what do you mean? So it's like, in, in one way it's great because actually if you can get into a conversation you understand that many people will have very diverse perspectives about what play might mean to them. But equally, if you overuse the word, people just tune out and think, what are you talking about? So well, this isn't for me. So I suppose when you're thinking of the essence of what this is about, it's about people finding the thing that brings them to life, you know, what makes you feel good, uh, what gives you, a, you know, in psychological or um, biological ways, it's about a flow state, mm. losing track of time, 
being like like a kid you know the thing when the hours melt away because you're so immersed in doing something you love doing that you do something for its own end not because you know there's a payment or reward or a pat on the back at the end of it you know that is therapeutically good for you to do as a human being to find those things that make you feel connected to yourself so that is what we would call the intrinsic thing of play is just that it makes you feel great right yeah well whatever that is for you musical instruments football games card games board games making something playing with notions ideas yeah well uh, and well i was going to ask how how do you sort of personally define play because it's a it is like you say a very difficult thing to define Uh, i heard someone talking about it as something that you know you kind of have to eliminate everything else to say oh well it's play it's it's not work it's not this it's not that you know you can't just say play is this you have to say what it's not so what what is your definition of play i mean i think in some ways i've i've maybe not answered it fully in what i've just said but my own personal interpretation of play is playing with boundaries Hmm. how much can i get away with uh what are the rules what are the what's really fun for me is to sort of see how far i can go with something Hmm. um if i pod away at this and again this is what you'll find um people they find their limits don't they by seeing you know if I ask for that or I push at that how far will I go now if you can do that playfully you're more likely not to get a smack around the chops mm. or a you know something that <laughs> words of that, that effect so um, whether that so to my mind that's a societal purpose I've got which is these there are rules out there in the world that don't make sense to me yeah. um there are someone else has made these you know, these rules up how, how do we find out so it's really like it's, it's about power in many ways hmm. do I have the power to put my shipping container down wherever I want to you know hmm. do I have to ask permission for that hmm. uh, so even this sort of playful thought experiment of it is rewarding to me as a you know human being to test my own sense of what I can and can't do hmm. and yeah does that make sense it does make sense. So how did you come to this sort of way of thinking, this way of being? So can you talk us through sort of developing the CIC and sort of, you know, the first few things that you did? God, um, why did it come about? Yeah, so on a personal level, I had, I was running a website with a guy called Phil Kirby called The Culture Vulture. Mm-hmm. It's like a multi-author blog site. And then um, I was running the Twitter account for that and I had very small children probably about the age of two and under and I would be sort of like reflect I was as you know from my Twitter I'm very open and our stream of consciousness will come out and I remember talking about coming into town with the kids and you know just saying does anybody else have this experience so it did definitely come from a what it's like to have children perspective at that stage and People would sort of talk about their experiences of public transport, of lack of green space near them, of antisocial things. Lots of reasons why they didn't feel the world was affording a playful experience for them or their children. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was asking these questions, more and more people were saying, well, this is my experience and this is my experience. So I realised 
quite quickly that I wasn't alone. You know, that my experiences of them trying to get on a bus with two, you know, like two kids was writ large, not just in Leeds, everywhere really. Um, and you just start to realise how poorly designed the world is for people who aren't, who've got other caring commitments or aren't as able-bodied, you know, can't, all sorts of things make, started to open my eyes up to the fact that we don't design for difference. Yeah. And so even things like my, my daughter would be in potty training, she won't thank me for sharing this, but, you know, going into town with a child who needs to go there and then to toilet, mm. you know, you, your brain starts to go, oh my God, I, I'm mentally mapping this space very differently to how I was before children. Yeah. And so then I'd have that conversation on Twitter and people would be saying, well, it's not just for children that that is an issue actually. And it's something we don't talk about, but you know, if you've got, I'm going to use this expression, if you've got irritable, because this is what did happen in a conversation, irritable bowel syndrome, for example, then you may need to go when you need to go. Right. And so the same thing that a toddler is communicating, which is no time need now. Yeah. So, so you're like, okay, so how how can we playfully navigate some of this stuff, which makes a sort of physical experience of going anywhere or being somewhere a more playful one? Mm -hmm. or play or has more affordance for playful experiences, let's say. Mm -hmm. So Play is not going to happen if you're poor, if you're stressed, if you're, it's just not built into the way we design things or experiences to create lovely spaces for people who we don't consider at the design process. So, but if you just start kind of, how would you put it, you can, the way you want to go about creating the change you want to see really is to be it, isn't it? I think. So instead of just kind of being cross at the world, how do we playfully have conversations which invite many different voices into them to make the change happen that they want to see too? And that's really where Playful Anywhere, what is Playful Needs, was born at that point, really. Um, so it wasn't just a child-friendly sort of lens. Mm -hmm. So yes, if we design for children, we should be designing for all ages. Mm -hmm. And we're not doing that currently. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other sort of flip side to this was actually, as my children were growing up they would see the affordance for play anywhere in a city center you know aside from running into traffic you know they would find the ledges that they wanted to climb onto the this sort of, um i don't know railings they were almost like heat seeking missiles really of what was playful from their perspective and it was fun to observe them kind of do things that i didn't do as an adult you know, that running freely, climbing, exploring physically. You know, actually, it's, it's, we think that play is like a swing slides and roundabouts. Mm. And, you know, if, you, if you're open to it and you've kind of done a little mini risk assessment in your head of can they run into traffic, will they, you know, but trying not to sort of constrain them too much as well. Mm -hmm. So seeing what happens if you, and so if you see this with skateboarders, you see it with parkour, you know, you see it with that physical enjoyment of public space. Mm. You can, it's just what lens you choose to wear really. So that's kind of where Playful League started. And then we did lots of events, which was around citizens kind of thinking about their city as a playground, lots with the business. And we worked for Asda on a big event with community groups called Connect the Dots. We took over empty shops, mm -hmm. we had events in museums, 
we just started to do lots and lots of things which brought people together to explore their own sense of um, what they would like to do more of to where they lived or in the city centre. So with the corporate work, did you approach them or did they approach you? Um, Asda, um, in particular Asda, I was cheekily using Twitter. In fact, this is the podcast I'm going to be on later, in fact, uh, with Don Birch. And he was kind of PR at that point, I think. And I just remember going to him and going, what about we do such and such? And we, a friendship formed, really. And then he started coming to events that we were running through the Culture Vulture. And then I started working with him on various different digital projects within Asda. Yeah. And the Connect the Dots project kind of came out really because in that sense, a lot of business people would be working in the city centre of Leeds yeah. and wouldn't leave their desks at lunchtime. They just carry on working right through. Yeah. And there was, there was a sense of you're physically in a space, but you're not connected to the space beyond work. Mm-hmm. So how do we connect the dots between what amazing independent retail interesting stories people exist within the local sort of area of Leeds around Asda and beyond and how do we also for the there's a lot of there's a lot of people who go to work and wear a work hat but actually of course they're much more than that so there was a whole load of well by by day I work at Asda but I'm a musician or I'm a Mm-hmm. creative person I don't quite know how I ended up in this role kind of thing. so we were like saying well actually part of this is connecting you back into your loves and passions and interests but also there's a whole load of really interesting people doing very interesting stuff across Leeds you would probably really benefit from the exchange of you getting to know a bit more about them them getting to know a bit more about you yeah and so we we did this sort of um, world cafe kind of process where people got to tell each other a little bit about themselves and some of the community and creative groups had ideas that they were trying to develop. And so it's like having a sort of gently warm sounding board of, oh, we want to put on this thing. And then they asked the people having to listen and sort of just, it was a bit, it was conversational coaching kind of stuff, really. Mm. And then a big top event at the end, actually, which was a, a sort of at the end of the day, a celebratory way of kind of saying what, you know, what they, how they started the day. Actually, it sounds quite terrifying, even as I think about it, you know, in front of this massive big top, um, how they started the day and the kinds of things that had emerged through the day. And so, you know, some of those led to sort of real change of like um, one group wanted to put a big piece of artwork on a bit of land that Asda had quite a lot of influence and sway over. So mm-hmm. they had deliberately come on this sort of Connect the Dots event so that they could make relationships with people within Asda because they'd been getting nowhere fast. Mm-hmm. And so that led to some shift. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there were some really good outcomes, and then there were also things which just didn't go any further. So the seeds, some will grow, some will wither, some will do nothing whatsoever. That's kind of the essence of play as well, though, isn't it? Of like, well, we'll just do a bunch of stuff, and then if anything comes out of it, great. And, and if it doesn't, it's also great because you know we've passed the time and we've had fun, hopefully. Yeah, and I think if you take care of the bit of it's a really fun, enjoyable day. So if you take care of the, like, if if nothing else, but that is what we achieve, mm-hmm. that is still a great outcome. Okay. And the dream, obviously, is that this, this I liken it to sort of creating a sort of ground of fertile, it's a fertile ground for future friendships to flourish. That That is what I think play, if you can look at it as cultivation, mm-hmm. creates more likelihood of something lovely happening. Mm. That's kind of it.
So when you went into this, I know you set up events, you set up spaces, you create spaces, you move spaces around in terms of the box. In terms of all the logistics and, and organising everything, was that a sort of learn as you go or did you already have those skills going into it or did you just rely on other people or you just went, oh, let's see what happens? Mm, so I can only, I'm usually the spark and then I have to work with other people mm. really because I'm really, in, you know, it's not like I'm incapable, but I certainly don't have the strengths that others have. And so I suppose I'm a really good talent spotter as well. And when I mean talent, mm -hmm. it's not like I'm looking for talent. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for people who love doing things. That That is what then they generally become quite good at because they love it. Yeah. So my whole kind of amorphous blob of work, really, as I look at it, really depends on who I've encountered. Because as soon as you encounter someone who goes, I love doing such and such, it kind of takes you off in a direction in a way. So um, you might start off thinking, this is the plan. But when you encounter new people, it can shift somewhat. So, but, you know, there will still be things that um, you do need to do in order to achieve any of those things. So, like, I have become okay, I suppose, at knowing how hauliers work, yeah. to shift shipping containers around. I couldn't I wouldn't want to be a haulier myself but you know I know who the good ones are who turn up who are nice and yeah. they're amazing I know how they like to schedule their days so that you you know my little jobs are generally not very you know they don't remunerate them very well and they're not very exciting to them they just see it as a shipping container they're not interested in the why of it at all really yeah um so you know you I suppose if I was to write a CV, I'd have project management, budget control, all of those things that I actually think are just things you have to do in order to get from A to B. Yeah. Not that I want to be a project manager. Yeah. Or a producer, all the names that you get. That's a, well, that's a producer role or yeah. a creative director role or a project manager role or a digital inclusion role. Or it, it all feels like, well, they're just names, aren't they, for things that you do to make something happen. Yeah. And I think with a lot of them, they're becoming, you know, less, less, less relevant in a lot of ways because people are doing, you know, starting to cross boundaries so much more that, you know, that you're so many things, you know, you, you're, if you did your job titles, like, you know, events and producer and like head of the company and in charge of ideas and it's just too long. So it can't, it can't encapsulate everything that you do. But I'm not brilliant at any of those things either so the kind of generalist nature of it all is that I know that um like podcasts for example I know that I can output you know something from zoom it'll be raw and polished I can present it in that way of course I know that I, I have neither the inclination or desire to become really polished at podcasting mm. but I, I like to meet people who do want to do that yeah. you know so that I have like the ability when next I'm talking, you know, I was talking to a friend who's a coach, she was like saying that she wants to do some podcasting and had a very particular thing that she wanted to do in her podcast. And she was like, but I don't know how to podcast. And I was like, well, just have a go, work out what you don't know and then find out who the people are out there who can help you with the bits you don't know, right? Yeah. And to my mind, it's like the, the podcast world, people go, we don't, we don't need enough podcasts. I'm like, that's not really the point to my mind. Podcasting is a beautifully intimate experience mm. where even if you've got two or three people who are listening in and they're really getting some benefit from it, it that is the key thing. It's not necessarily about mass broadcast. It's a very, in, you know, it's a very, I, I did read a beautiful article about the whole 
fact about the intimacy of podcasting and I was like that is why it really appeals to me as a format to listen to but also to you know if we were to make one you know to feel like your is it like your tribe is definitely a sense of um not seeing with people who really want to connect over that subject matter mm. which um, yeah which in terms of sort of you know you can see that negatively as like going towards a sort of echo chamber thing of people just meeting and discussing the same things but you know you find more often than not when you find someone who's interested in something that you're interested in you bond on those experiences and then you find out a whole bunch of new things that they're into and and vice versa you know you have that exchange of uh, culture i suppose for want of a better term but you yeah you, you do have that transmission of of new ideas and new concepts even within a small circle obviously it's great to kind of diversify and bring in new voices and meet other people and look in new areas that you wouldn't necessarily look but that's not closed off from starting at a point of meeting with commonality and familiarity and, and things that you both like. So um, it gives you license, doesn't it? I think that sort of thing of like going back to why I started the culture vulture and other websites before that was the license to go and explore and discover, you know, so people weren't ever bothered by how many readers we had or it really wasn't the question anybody would care about actually. It was like the fact that I went and said, you look really interesting. Tell me more about what you're up to. And I think people just don't feel seen very much. You know, like we're billions of people on this planet. And actually, someone, you know, not everybody walks around thinking they're interesting, mm. but most people are interesting. Mm. <laughs> so, you're being curious in itself is a very lovely thing for people to experience. Mm. Um, and I really, really enjoy that, you know, kind of meeting people and being curious about them. Mm. And people going, nobody's asked me that question before so that's why I like going on other people's podcasts because it's therapeutic as well for me yeah I can see how it affects other people when you're interested in them yeah and then you become really good at connecting you know like oh I know a person who loves doing this and I know a person who's really good at that and that's yeah. what it's all about really isn't it yeah exactly I mean part of the reason that I'm doing this is because I came back to Leeds in 2015. I'd been away for a long time, lived in Amsterdam, lived in London for a while. I did some traveling and um, came back here. I was just doing temp jobs. And it was like, this is this is boring. And other people that I knew that were still here, you know, like for my old mates that I'd stayed in touch with, they all knew loads of people. And I was like, why do they know all these people? And I don't know anybody. And it's like, well, they've been, been here for the past 15 years, meeting <laughs> people. You haven't. So part of the reason I want to do this is like I know there's interesting people in Leeds. Like, how do I access them? Yeah. The other thing you said as well about um, you know, people being seen and going up to them and, and kind of being curious about them. I'd like to hear your experience of that journey. Obviously, I'm kind of starting out with sort of at the moment, my process is being like broad invites. I'm, I'm realizing that you have to be specific and you have to kind of narrow things down to people of like, are you this particular thing? And then you might get a response. But then there's there's still people who are that thing that you're looking for. They're just thinking, it's not me. I wouldn't be interesting. And you must have encountered people like that. How do you how do you kind of coax people out? How do you bring that out of people? How do you make them feel comfortable? Well, it's a good question, actually, because I suppose I've got multiple ways in doing it. So like on Twitter, which is my favourite place to hang out, I suppose, 
well, in I have equivalents in the physical world, but in on the digital world, Twitter is my favourite place. There were questions. I, I love questions. So crafting a question is my absolute favourite thing. And I think if you can get a good question, people can respond to it or not as they see fit. So it's not like you must respond. But if, if you've crafted a good question, it might actually sit with somebody, not just for that day, but maybe it'll keep coming back because as the question, it might have value. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I'm, I believe in a sort of form of questioning, which is called appreciative inquiry. Yeah. Okay. So actually allowing people to kind of reframe almost through the questions that you're using. So I could use a load of negative questions. But I just don't want to do that. So I don't want to put people's heads in a place of despair and sadness. So if I'm going to ask a question, it might be something evocative or emotional or something, you know, pleasant or connecting, which allows people to disclose or reveal a bit of something that allows someone else to go. Oh, that's interesting. You know, mm -hmm. so you're the best analogy really is like imagining you're a pub landlord or a pub landlady or something, which is your job is to create a convivial space. Mm -hmm. And the way that you welcome people, make eye contact, talk to them allow for you to still run a decent pub because you've still got all the other things to do mm -hmm. but your job really is to uh, you know create that space for the person who wants to drink alone at the bar and we can use other analogies because obviously drinking culture is not the only way we can organize our you know metaphors analogies and what have you but my nan was a landlady so i saw this in you know an action a village pub where you could nurse half a shandy for hours and nobody would bother you or you could be playing crib or darts or playing in some kind of group or, you know. So the dynamics of creating space mm. is always in my mind of like, what are the questions that will enable us to have a convivial time together? Mm. Not just me being in the center as the person behind the bar doing all the pump, you know, I've still got the kitchen to work, work and the toilets got blocked and the, barrels need changing and the dog's barking and there's somebody at the off license and there's that person who's come in for the six gold label bottles of for their alcoholic pair you know that is what you're doing really you're thinking like a village mm. yeah. so i think if you know what you're wanting to achieve somewhat your questions will shape themselves in a way okay. you know why my purpose is and it, it's not a judgment for me as to your purpose if you've roughly got an idea of what you're seeking to achieve mm. then your questions will kind of elicit certain things yeah yeah I, yeah i would agree with that i want to um so you mentioned design a couple of times and talking about how things aren't aren't really designed for anyone apart from you know the, it's <laughs> it's like the ergonomics thing the, the thing i heard was about heating in buildings like heating in buildings is generally designed for some 40 year old white man in the 60s and it's like this is why nobody's temperature is 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 right you know you work in offices the person next to you is always and or you you know you someone's always unhappy with the temperature in an office um, and it's a similar thing with the the spaces of the design for a kind of an imaginary person that doesn't really exist uh, so do you have do you have a design background yourself or is this something that you came to realize about how important design was what given that you are in a business of designing spaces for play and um, what what's your relationship to design it's, it's funny because i suppose it's only recently i've even used the word design 
I was a, unconscious, I suppose, that I was actually designing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the more I look at it, of course I am, really, because mm. there's an intent behind what I'm trying to achieve or what have you. So, of course you are designing. I just wasn't explicit. So I do have an arts background, but again, I did the Art Foundation course. And at that point, uh, for those who haven't experienced an Art Foundation course, it's the best year of education. It's just amazing. You get to have a go at loads and loads of different things, different materials. Again, it's playing. So you're playing, really, because the, the pressure is not, you know, maybe you want to go off to art college or whatever. But to all intents and purposes, you're given a whole load of stuff. Some people can show you how to use that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to specialise. And so I suppose that that is what I'm trying to design as an experience through life for me and others. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of less outcome-oriented culture of have a go, try things. Don't worry if it doesn't work out. Find out what you love doing. And actually, even through that process, we realise you are not an artist. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I was like wow the people who really want to make their career out of this they've got something in them I don't right yeah <laughs> so but what I look back on and think of that year was how interested I was in everybody else's studios all the work you know so I was the social glue of like going around everybody else and looking at what they were doing and going hey let's have a party and um I remember a particular um crit session with the of photography who was like trying to you know help us work out what careers we wanted mm-hmm. he, he came to me and I'm not very good at I think I speak before I think I suppose yeah. and uh, I went I just want to have like, a really nice cafe mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like why are you here <laughs> describing was the space the feeling of a nice cafe if not a nice cafe mm. so yeah. I think you know lubrication helps no matter which space um you're going to create the design design I suppose now I'm conscious of it I am using the word more often mm-hmm. um, because there is intent and it is conscious and mm. my consciousness though is I don't want people to feel they're in a very designed space yeah I want it to feel really like natural yeah or that they, or that they are, well, you want it to be kind of a, a, an empty space, really, don't you, for them to, you know, it's like, it needs to be, well, the way I imagine it, it's kind of like, it needs to be fresh snow for someone to go and jump in and put their footprints in, and like, yes. do you have the box, the box opens up, the space is actually the, the area that it's been put in, and then people have to build within that. That's it, and that's really, for some people, like, again, it can divide people very quickly, so like, uh, I was tweeting this yesterday about structure and I'm also really starting to learn about neurodiversity as well so the design of space for people who have different preferences and different energies mm-hmm. you know so actually a lot of what I was designing for um, without really knowing it was I think I have probably ADHD so there's a definite like impulse I have but my son we've recently sort of had an assessment and he has dyspraxia and a lot of the sort of bodily sort of energies, explanation of energy and what they call perception, perception, let me say it properly, you know, this need to externalise energy mm-hmm. and manifest itself in one minute, like swooshing about, like needing loads and loads of space mm-hmm. to be comfortable, to kind of express, to 
feel, you know, not necessarily uncoordinated, but just to be in your body. Yeah. And um, without fear of judgment or what have you. And then quick, as quickly as the wind can turn to kind of want to be quiet and feel like you're able to go into this little snug area and, you know, you've had enough of people, for example. You know, so trying to even just work those spaces out for our own needs. Mm-hmm. wasn't I wasn't even conscious of that but thinking actually people need these different spaces which allow them to switch from one kind of emotional physical state to another without it being like really like and now you're going to go into this quiet corner and now you're going to run around in like a you know so um where am I going with this so the, the structure bit is it, it can feel too too structured sometimes too rigid yeah, we're not like that, are we? You know, like oh, I've got to go and stand in that box now. So being able to go, we need fluidity within our structures, which allow for changes in feelings and temperatures and mood, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, is one thing, and then the other is quite often we're very conditioned to having a, an itinerary or a plan. So yeah. I would definitely notice this with. I want to make a huge generalization here, but mums would come into a space and they would the children would just barrel forward and do whatever they fancied doing and you know we laid out a smorgasbord of materials or cardboard or slime you know different things they could go and dive into and they would find the thing they wanted to do and if it didn't exist they'd come and tell you mm-hmm. right and then mums would just sit back on their shoulders and sort of like oh take away off have a cup of coffee, talk to someone, diddle about on the phone. We didn't ever really care. We don't care. And that was it. You know, two hours later, the kids, you know, just a sense of like unfolding, really, unfurling. But if you like structure and you like to know what's happening at a certain time, mm-hmm. what it, what are the rules of engagement here? You know, that, that sort of free-flowing thing can actually be really an, an, alien, an alienating experience. Yeah. So equally, we've got to work out how do we do the things that feel, um, I call it like a breadcrumb trail, really, of things that are known, understandable, recognisable conventions mm-hmm. that don't make somebody feel silly if they yeah. don't know how to encounter free-flowing stuff. Yeah. So you need things like your Lego and whatever's popular. Uh, yeah. And maybe a bit of this happens at this time. Uh, this is, you know, some language stuff around how to engage with a space. Yeah. So it's it's not like, oh my god, is this run by a weird group of people who are going to make me do kumbaya at some point? Yeah. That fear of participation. Yeah, is it rainbow rhythms or <laughs> like Pete <laughs> who all have to do strange dances? Um, yeah. I think yeah, I think that's a really good point. I was going to ask you about you know people who are quite structured because you know whether you're you're structured because it, it, it's a kind of crutch that is the way that I see it. It's either something that you've been kind of indoctrinated in that you need to have these, like, what are the rules here? How do I have to behave? Where do I go? Where is everything situated? Or people that need that because they, they need that certainty there. Do you know what I mean? Of like, it, they, they need something to hang on to, you know, whether it's a conceptual thing or, or a physical thing of like, I, I need something to hold on to here just to feel safe. That's yeah the way that i kind of see it i don't have a question with that but that was just 
know, absolutely right. I think if something looks like it's so chaotic or endless, mm. you know, is there an end to this thing? Mm. Am I committing myself to five minutes or five hours? Yeah. You know, it's that, it's kind of, oh my God, I don't know if I want to step over the threshold into that space. But I, I mean, going back to you, you sort of mention of flow, if you're thinking with regards to flow, um, if I'm thinking about flow, if I'm doing something that I'm interested in, that I get lost in, you get to that point where, you know, you, your biophysical reality comes in, whether you want a cup of tea or you need to go to the loo or whatever it is, you reach a point or even just you reach a natural point in the thing that you're doing where you're like, this isn't working. I need to take a break from it. I need to step back from it. And it can be any amount of time. So suppose with people like that, where they're, they're quite structured and like you say, you mentioned the Lego. Yeah. Like, I mean, that was an obvious one of like, you just put a bunch of Lego in front of someone. They know what to do with it. Even if they just end up building a tower, at least they've, you know, they're starting to engage with it. Yeah. So are there any other, are there any kind of like winning toys that are really good for kind of breaking the ice with people? Yeah. So I think um, what I've learned is, so like fiddle toys you know fiddle fidget stuff has become really people have become much more aware of that now actually mm -hmm. but they sort of need to sort of do something with your fingers and mm -hmm. um, also the need to feel purposeful so again that sense of like even if it wasn't a play space people always want a sense of what can I do right so not many people in my experience will just come and sit down and just don't care about anything else or anybody else you know they, they kind of want to know what their role is yeah. So always, <laughs> so the kind of things that you can have to give people something to occupy themselves with, right? So an event might be fashion, a, a name badge, but don't just do it in a book. You know, here's a load of stuff and it's up to you. Now, some people get framed by that and they'll go, I'm not very creative. You know, so how you welcome people is really important. So it's not a case of you've got to do something really wacky. Mm -hmm. so it's just like offer the opportunity to if you wish to without making it feel divisive if people don't right so there's even those little touch points how do you welcome and sitting group work or individual or sort of smaller pairs for example it's finding things that allow people to have good conversations without feeling like they have to be face to face and make eye contact mm -hmm. so side by side activities you know so like um it's what for everybody i mean lego is totally one of those things but things like winding um so like Lumps of clay, plasticine, pom-poms. Pom-poms have always surprised me because we gender things quite a lot, like crafts are quite gendered. Yeah. I've never met anybody yet, whichever gender, who doesn't like actually making a pom-pom once they start set about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other thing about things like those pom-poms are that they're actually, we, we use a pom-pom maker, which allows people to go, oh, I used to make it like this. Well, this is a newfangled thing isn't it so you definitely have the ability to kind of talk about how people used to do things how they're using this particular contraption and then because, because you're winding sooner or later it becomes unconscious mm -hmm. so you can sit there quietly doing it or you can have a chat with someone else right or you can start saying oh can I borrow the scissors so the different ways that you've created the ability for people to sort of make connection with each other or not but they, you know, the quiet person who just wants to make a really damn good pom-pom can just do that without needing to feel the pressure to chat. 
Yeah. So you're thinking about all the things that make people feel uncomfortable and you're trying to sort of alleviate them to some degree. So yeah. some people will look for a job to do and they'll say, can I help with the washing up? Or whatever the thing is. And it's a bit going back to your thing about an empty box. You've got enough in it so that people can step into it and think there's a role for me if I want one. Mm-hmm. So if you were really perfectionist, you would have got the washing up done. You'd have, you know, you've got to get, it's got to be a slight bit of like, I call it designed incompetence. Like I'm really shit at barbecues, but that's kind of never become good at them because I know other people like that role more than I want it. Yeah. So we did a whole session of barbecue evenings in a park for six months. And, you know, it's known I would burn the sausages. Good, because I don't want to be the person behind the barbecue. And you do. <laughs> uh, so... Well, there's a couple of other questions that I want to go into. I'll, I'll go through the sort of um, more standard kind of formal stuff. So let's talk about the last year. Uh, so with lockdown, uh, what plans did you have before lockdown, the first one, started? Uh, and how did it change as you went into lockdown and through lockdown and then coming out the other side, what, what, how's it changed your business? How's it changed your, your thinking? Um, and how was the whole experience, I suppose? Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, it is now, after a full <laughs> year of this. <laughs> oh dear, so... Um, and an odd time to think about it, because now our minds are moving into a place of, it's done now, you know, even though it's not necessarily, but I think a lot of us are feeling that, like, oh, you know, it's definitely getting a bit better now. It's a real interesting thing, isn't it? Because I suppose underlying the principles of playfulness um, are some deeper questions about being adaptable, dealing with emergence. Yeah, so I suppose in some way, and being a self-employed person as well, you know, the the reality is for people who are self-employed, you never get that comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you've got regular retained work and your business is doing, you, you've always got that background hum, I think, of it's my end tomorrow. Yeah. I'm only as good as my last job. Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're in a sort of, your mindset, generally speaking, is always in a hustler mode, yeah. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> so that can keep you on your toes. It can be quite exhausting, but it has a lot of benefits as well. And so I think if you if you've kind of embraced this life, you have got to constantly find new ways to reinvent and use the materials and skills and energies that you've got, mm-hmm. no matter what the context. Mm-hmm. And that is leadership theory, really. You know, there's leadership. I've worked with a great guy. He was working a lot with before lockdown. And, you know, there's sort of one of those models is called VUCA, isn't it? Volatile, uncertain. It's not chaotic. I always forget what we see. Uh, and the AR, but anyway, there's there's a theory which is about volatility, and we're we're in a volatile volatile time. So my my view is, if you can keep um, a playful emergent mindset, mm-hmm. even when you're really stressed, and it's the thing you can kind of almost go back to as your actual safe space, mm-hmm. which is I can actually create value out of a piece of chalk. Mm-hmm. Right? I can do something tomorrow because. That is what play allows you to do, is to conceive of different situations, imagine different possibilities. Mm-hmm. So it is about constant reinvention. 
So that is a sort of philosophical way of framing the fact that, of course, I was polaxed <laughs> when the pandemic came because my business was actually starting to really sort of bear fruit, in fact, um, yeah. of the work that we've been doing for the last, I don't know, five years of getting in commissions and contracts to go and do really interesting stuff in other local authorities, looking at play and place and health and well-being. And um, we kind of more or less got to a point of finding a headquarters site for our developing idea for multiple boxes um, of play, food, drink, growing, um, recycling, upcycling, Playbox Planet. So we'd, we'd actually located a site. So all the things that I've kind of been working towards were starting to come to fruition at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, obviously quite a lot of what we do involves people being in a space together mm. physically mm. and people touching objects. Mm. And whilst a lot of it is outdoor actually, which is one of the blessings of what we do, if not in winter, obviously the world just, I mean, well, it collapsed, didn't it? In that sense of like, even if the idea could have worked in an outdoor space, people's brains, their capacities, their ability to do anything other than firefight meant that the things that we needed to keep pressing ahead just went to pop completely. So people yeah. being available to talk to you, to answer emails, yeah. your team players being at home with their kids, you know, me being at home with my kids, all the things kind of just went, mm, I'll do this. I think the best thing I did do was to accept it, accept it and go, this is the reality. Yeah. There's not a lot that's within my power other than how we create a harmonious home, really. I can't fight this. The best thing to do is to be, you know, as, as, as much as possible with everybody's different emotions to just try and enjoy this weird time. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Is that the only thing I have any control over? Yeah, but it's like you, you know, you've you've been locked, you've been put under house arrest essentially. It's like, well, how am I how am I going to pass this time? So you know, you you know your own house, but you don't normally spend as much time in it as as we have done. So it's it's you know, again, creating spaces and creating to a degree routines uh to keep you keep you occupied and to make some you know make the days seem different <laughs> i think one of the things that's so hard is that it's like always the same you know and especially yeah. people who were like all they do is a work you know whether they were going in or they're doing it online and work stop working go to sleep get up work again and that's yeah it. i can't see anyone i can't socialize you know it's uh yeah very very difficult for a lot of people but then for a lot of other people it's like well you know i've got to i've got to do something with this time and i know a lot of people were like oh i'm going to have these intentions of i'm going to do this i'm going to do this i'm going to do this and then ended up not doing any of them <laughs> did you find that having the sort of because you're doing play and you would be working still around ideas of play did you find that that helped you find creative solutions and helped you sort of keep ticking along it gave you some structure even yeah, so in terms of the family, though, so there is, because obviously they're, you know, they're bored, they're bored of all the things I find interesting. They live with me all the time, don't they? So even trying to sort of turn schooling into like magic school, which was one of my early attempts to sort of 
look at the curriculum and go, let's turn this into like wizard class or whatever. <laughs> Honestly, it was just, <laughs> let's decorate unicorns and dot them around the neighborhood. All my ideas were just like, nah, not interested. <laughs> so uh, I quickly tired of the attempts to be a good teacher. That was a bit like, so then I fully embraced this whole thing called unlearning, which was pretty much like, all learning's a bit too rigid so we all kind of got in the first phase of lockdown we really quite enjoyed being very just doing whatever we wanted to basically my daughter's just come back like a drowned rat uh, <laughs> so so bless her um so i think it was letting go like you say of the ambitions you might have to do something but i did get involved in digital access stuff so um one of the projects we were doing before lockdown was a thing called uh, YouTube Makers Club with kids from across yeah. the city. And a lot of my other work I've done will have sort of digital inclusion and access elements to it. And we recognised very quickly, or let's just say I've known for a while, that obviously digital equipment and connectivity is not spread equally across any city, not the Leeds. So um, we sort of recognized at the beginning of lockdown actually there were going to be a lot of people expected to do online learning mm. and libraries were having to shut and the ability to actually know who needed what was hard because we couldn't communicate other than digital yeah so we knew there were gaps out there but we just didn't know who needed what so um a small group of us got set up a thing called digital access west yorkshire which was all volunteer-led Mm -hmm. um, so there was Jack from the High Park Book Club, um, Gail from Creative Carvely, Claire Garside, um, who does a lot of educational tech stuff, and um, tech volunteers, oh, Ben McKenna, who runs Solidaritech, who does amazing stuff with refugees and asylum seekers. So we literally just went, look, what can we do? Because we know there's a need, but we don't know what the extent that need is. So um, we set up Digital Access West Yorkshire, and then we had three really brilliant technicians volunteer their time they were on furlough or uh, weren't working so that sort of became this sort of thing I actually invested quite a lot of time and energy into in the end mm -hmm. um whereas my sort of other work just sort of heated out a bit really okay. but it felt like there was a sense of mini play boxes as well so they were like working with LS14 Trust who um, have a shipping container called Playbox 3 which is part of a network approach we want to sort of develop further they were like very close to the communities that they sit, sit within and serve. Yeah. And they were like, we know that people can't, um, you know, aside from food, drink, medicines, et cetera, which they were delivering, yeah. they'd sort of switch from being a community development space to a, you know, one of those first responder type operations. Right. It's, you know, once people got past that need, then their real need was they were going up the walls of boredom, right? So the creative arts stuff that we would normally do Naomi and Howard um, from NS14 Trust and fall into place. Like we need to get these things out to families who can't leave the home and to isolating people. And so we worked on a project called Mini Playbox, which was a smaller version of the shipping container. And then Seagulls Paint and Kirkstall got involved in that as well. Mm -hmm. And so this whole kind of like they they were all very hot on the distribution delivery. I did a lot of the digital elements of it. Um, coordination really there were a couple of projects that sort of emerged because they met a need and they were still about play creativity and connectivity but in a digital time when not everybody would have that 
you know, be able to do it equally. Yeah. Yeah. So th- those sort of felt like I was contributing in a time when otherwise I felt like I don't know really quite how to get my own business back on track, really. Mm. I think people did want to, if they could, you know, you saw the sort of mutual aid groups that sprung up, mm. lots of really neighbourly kind of activity, community activity. You know, people do want to feel that they're useful or that they're helpful. Mm. So, well, they're, um, yeah, yeah. They're helpful, useful, needed, <laughs> required. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it's like with digital access stuff, Sometimes the problem feels so vast, but actually if you bring it back down to its simplest form, it's what one thing can we do today? What, you know, so we have this motto, which we still do, which is called act fast, act local. You know, so get one machine from somebody who doesn't need it, wiped and cleaned and restored to someone who does need it. Mm. You know, so it wasn't like let's tackle a mountain uh, of gazillions, because that's probably how many needed to be done. But yeah. let's just put in a process which enables flow, actually, between... And so the whole circular economy stuff, which has always been interesting to all of us, is that, really, which is there is stuff which is in unevenly distributed. Mm. Some people have stuff sitting on their shelves doing nothing. Some businesses yeah. do. Um, but the bit of, like, making it safe to pass on to somebody was the bit they couldn't do. Yeah. And, again, with the people who needed things... We went at the grassroots, but we worked with a group of, or we do, I I keep saying it in the past tense, we are still continuing to do this. We work with a group of referrers who do work with the people, whether it's refugees and asylum seekers or children or women who've fled domestic violence. You know, there's a massive range of people that will, we don't get to see the end recipients of the devices, but the referrers will be working with them directly and will be identifying who needs what yeah. and our job really is just to get as, as my friend Claire who's on the team put it uh, we ship tin you know we're not trying to do all the other things yeah. like the skills bit or the wi-fi bit yeah we're going to get machines from one place to another yeah so it kept it quite simple really yeah it's a good approach <laughs> simple's best there's, there's less fail points with simple I think I think it's dangerous in a time when you feel overwhelmed to try and eat the whole elephant yeah it's like we got we can't do that we just it's too big yeah what, what can we do yeah i keep saying to my my little nephew who's four how do you eat an elephant <laughs> one mouthful at a time <laughs> yeah and that's it really and i think that that's the way we've got to go about things do one small thing did you ever consider so a couple of silly questions now because we are talking about play so first silly question is um did you ever consider having everyone in like basically hazmat suits for the play and so that they were covid safe <laughs> well, the, the ones, I mean, yes if i was a benevolent dictator yeah <laughs> I, I don't think the crew fancy it as much as i might fancy seeing it happen yeah. but they're kind of like Zorb as well, you know, the yeah. Zorb balls. I was like, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Now, the, the thing that stops us doing anything like that is budget, ultimately. So if, if someone listening to your podcast says, you know what, we'd really like to support you to do even more crazy daft stuff. Yeah. Um, then do let me know, because ultimately, like I said, we, we create some, we hustle. Hmm. We, we're constantly sort of trying to build a business with not huge amounts of money coming in. Hmm. So, 
we could spend more money, I think, on business development and commercialising some of what we do mm. in order to bring in more money to have hazmat suits and doorballs and yeah. more daftness. But it sounds, it's kind of like you need more seriousness to get more silly. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, someone who's good at commercial stuff, because honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm really good at asking, but I don't always know how much to ask for or, you know, the value proposition and who, right. who really would want this. So if I know those things, I'm quite happy to go and bang on anyone's door. But, you know, I do genuinely believe that in certain contexts, play has no value at mm. all. So nobody wants to pay for it, which is why we don't have it in statutory it's not a statutory right in English law to um, uphold the UN Convention for Children's Rights Play, which is terrible. Well, I would say that England is dedicated to stopping play. You know, like the, 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 the general trend of any government in this country is generally, oh, you're having fun, are you? Well, we'll have to put a stop to that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the impression I've always had here. You're right. And I think it's because we're, we're seeing, so I'll go back to the sort of Protestant work ethic Calvinist mindset that we have grown up in, really, in a monarchistic country, right? So we are serfs, ultimately, and we're here to be, if not robots, then makers of value for GDP reasons. Yeah. Which is the antithesis of play, let's be honest. Yeah. Because what would happen if we all woke up from this torpor that we're in? and actually recognise that we had rights, we had critical thinking abilities, we could enjoy our lives beyond nine to five. Mm. I'm a heretic radical here, right? It's like, yes, work is great. It's great. It's great for the soul to do things that you love doing and that you feel you're adding value to the world. Mm. But actually, we're more than economic units. Mm. Um, are you familiar with David Graeber? Yes, sadly, he passed away, didn't he? Yeah, last year. Um, yeah, that was devastating for me. What was it? What was the thing that I was going to say? Um, oh, yeah. So you, you were talking about uh, this obsession with production. And he's like, you know, you make a cup once, you wash it a thousand times. And he's like, why is the obsession always on production? And, you know, even bringing up like something like the Biden plan of like there's a big infrastructure spend, you know, which is Trump's supposed plan as well. But why do these things always have to be infrastructure and infrastructure spends and, and production spends you know why is none of the consideration about maintenance about uh, and even stuff like care you know care at the end of the day is to a degree a level of, of maintenance and you know i suppose it's more than that but you know there's an element of maintenance in it yeah so again i'm just agreeing with you it's not really a question <laughs> no but i think it's great because i think the premise of talking about work hmm. is interesting because I often will talk about performative things that we do um, in order to pay the bills, right? Mm. Which work can quite often look like. Yeah. You know, so this conversation could be quite a different conversation, couldn't it? But like, what, yeah. what tasks do you perform? <laughs> what yeah. status do you uh, want in life? What are the symbols of your achievements in life? You know, we're conditioned into that sort of way of looking at people's value and worth. Mm. Work lens, yeah. More so than we are, like what, what, what makes you feel happy? You know, we don't. But even the questions that we ask each other have a very work-oriented um, slant to them. Yeah. About questioning what is this work that we talk of, and why are we doing it, and what would we be doing if we were on a universal basic income, for example? Yeah. If if we had a long-term experiment 
to, to actually really truly understand who we would be if we weren't anxious and had scarcity mindsets. Mm. You know, and actually, would people still do the things that need doing if they didn't have to? You know, we're never going to find that out because we're never going to play with this notion that there's a different way of designing and organising our lives. Although I say never, that's a that's a bit of moral. Uh, well, that's sort of like a imaginative failure yeah well is it an imaginative failure or is it just you know your sense of is it pragmatic realism of just like i i can only bang my head against this wall for so long it's never going to come down but i'll go i'll keep doing it yeah i mean there's there's an experiment about to happen in wales i believe which is quite close to home um i I do despair a little bit though that they're given like two some of these experiments given like about two years and that you know the way they're presented in the media are things like well you know whilst productivity didn't increase people were presenting less at the doctors for medication you know as if that was like oh it's like well imagine that over 10 years then yeah oh uh, oh gdp went down by one percent but um the happiness index has gone through the roof but that doesn't matter so you know yeah. we're not doing that anymore <laughs> so we'd rather deal with medicalizing. I mean, so much of my work with Mike Chitty will have put words in my mouth, if I'm honest. And like, you deal with the bit which is the farmer, you know, uh, let's give you treatment, let's chop off your legs and limbs, mm. rather because that's a visible thing that people can account for, right? Mm. Rather than creating the conditions where none of those things needed to happen in the first place, because we can't, we can't count it if it didn't happen. You know, so it's firefighting my mentality. We put money at the critical care end rather than the what if we create the conditions that people didn't need to, mm. you know, be on antidepressants or, mm. you know, decide that life wasn't worth living or feel that they're in competition for resources because they seem finite or feel valued by their ability to be this or that. You know, we, we just do not organise ourselves in those ways. Mm. I don't think you expected this as your podcast, did you? <laughs> no, it's uh, no, it's fine. Honestly, Emma, this is that. I, I mean, I, I'm with you 100 on all of this. When I when I started this, my initial thing was because I was like, oh god, I hate jobs so much. Uh, <laughs> I'm sick of doing these jobs; they're all rubbish. I started this very much with the perception of like everyone that I'm going to talk to is all going to be like, oh, work sucks, you know. And that typical, and and that's been my, you know, largely my experience of working in English workplaces has been. You know, oh, Monday again, Monday's a rubbish out there. Oh, I hate working anywhere but here and all of that kind of rhetoric, which kind of rolls off the tongue in the workplace. Uh, when I worked, when I was, I was in Australia, I did the working visa. Um, it was in Sydney and was working there. And you just didn't have those conversations. You know, people were just, they went into work, they did their job and they didn't really like, they would only talk business, but they wouldn't talk about what the business was or, you know, what they thought of it. They were just like, it's a job, it pays me. I do my job, then I go out and I live my life. And whatever they were into, they would have, you know, if they were scuba diving, they'd have all the kit or whatever it was. And then it was just a very different um, vibe for me. I was very surprised by that. And equally doing this, uh, because again, I was like, everyone's just going to moan about work because that's what the English are like. Pretty much everyone I've spoken to is like, yeah, no, I really like my job. I, I like doing it. It gives me a lot of satisfaction. I get a lot out of it. So I was quite surprised to hear that when a lot of the time you hear about how miserable people are in their jobs and how unsatisfied. And I know that exists and I know those people are out there and I do want to speak to them at some point. Um, 
but that's not the experience that I've had in terms of who I'm actually speaking to. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to me. And as well, the amount of people who are doing things along the lines that you're doing, where we're trying to create new things and trying all the stuff that politics isn't doing, politics fails to do, that economics fails to do. There are people all over trying to do these things, trying to build a new system, trying to build a new way of living, trying to adapt to climate change, trying to actually move society forward rather than it just staying in this weird stasis forever of just like, you know, you get a new toy, but other than that, it doesn't seem like history or anything, any kind of developments really happening, it just seems to be kind of stuck in a lot of ways. That, that's my impression anyway. No, I think it's fascinating. And I think the word work as well is like, when you're doing the thing you love doing, it doesn't feel like work, does it? Again, go back to that flow. Yeah. You know, if, if all of your serotonin and your dopamine, you know, you're getting all of that hit, it's like, that didn't feel like work at all. So to other people, it might look like you work hard. Mm. Actually, the work that's hard for me is the stuff like, why doesn't someone just let me put a shipping container down where I want to put it? <laughs> the rumination of that question, I couldn't tell you how much that occupies. That feels like work. Yeah. Um, the bits that I just can't quite puzzle out. But that, in, even that problem is a sort of interesting puzzle. It's not a, this is going to depress me and I hate waking up every day to this problem. It's like a, ooh. Maybe today things will be different. <laughs> I'll meet someone who said, Do you know what? I'd really like to have a lovely thing happen on my land. Or even better still, go, here's a pot of money. There's my dog in the background there. You know, you, you seem to be doing a good thing. Come on, crack on. You know, just do more of that good thing. Because looking at your track record, you're not harming anybody, you know. And maybe, maybe you're doing a good thing even. You know, that if I was a funder, or patron of the art, you know, patron or a secret investor or any of those things, which I do dream about quite a lot, actually. I just would make it so much easier for the generally all right people. I'm not saying like they're doing anything miraculous, mm. just to do a bit more of what they're doing. Mm. Like, yeah, or to help them on their way a bit more. That that would be a, a marvellous thing to do. And I know there are public funders out there. But there's so much risk attached to the way that they distribute monies and they are working on this you can see there's some really interesting developments in the space of funding which is looking at things like emergence and um, there's some beautiful things on stewarding loss you know so the idea that things will come to an end and there's going to be grief and how do we finish things as much as you talk about maintenance mm. you know so care and all of those processes which are careful processes fill, filled with care Mm. you know there is some green shoots in all of those areas but it's just we've got this battle really of that emergence on the one hand of a more beautiful way of being a planet which is in massive distress or our time on it is in massive distress at least and then you've got the dinosaurs of the petrochemical era who really don't like the idea that maybe this future isn't going to help them mm. and that's why we see so much more in divisiveness mm. Because that's not going to benefit those people who benefit from our misery. Mm. Thank you for letting me have this therapy session. <laughs> I, I hope we don't play the antidote to all of this shit, but 
Well, it's very hard uh, to convey that sometimes. Yeah, I, I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of closed doors. So, you know, what are you going to do while you're locked in the corridor? Well, you've got to pass the time somehow. And uh, coming up with games would be a good way to do it. And and can be, you know, it's getting the creative juices flowing. It's getting your your, your imagination flowing. It's it's creating the the groundwork, the soil for you to sort of generate creative projects and you know, making it fertile. The other question that I was going to ask you along the lines of being silly questions, um, I'm assuming you're a fan of Taskmaster. No. no. Have you never seen I've it? I've watched it. Okay. <laughs> I know I really should. Uh, you should, yes. Because uh, I was, uh, well, I was going to ask you, it, it's basically, it's English parlor games, basically, and this obsession with parlor games that the English seem to have. Um, so I was going to ask you questions along those lines of like, do you see any of this play of being in the tradition of kind of of parlor games of, of you know, just getting people to do silly things and seeing how they tackle it? Not enough, actually. And I think that there are gaps. There are really big gaps in our preferences. So like my preference hasn't had like a tradition of parlor games, but yeah. we do work with people like, I don't know if you've come across Anne from Cards or Die. No, not yet. Oh, she's amazing. She she'd be great for your podcast. So she's she's both a sort of amazing. Um, she does things called Story Club with us. So she's really good with hmm. all ages. But she she does board game evenings and game design. Um, and I, so where I know I've got gaps, I'll go look. I need to work with people who uh, they love this stuff. That is the way that they see play. You know. So. Um, but having said that, we've got this new format called Radio Fun Time, which is what I used to call my cassette recording radio show when I was nine, I think. It's right, nine. <laughs> radio Fun Time, it's called. So we've brought that back up for a digital age. And so we do the Zoom recording on Sundays between 11 and 12. And it's like a it's Zoom's output to radio, well, output to YouTube and then potentially one day a podcast. Mm. But it's a kind of little motley collective of people who... Uh, so we've got Claire who's out and about and so she's kind of live in a particular location and she's up to any challenge except for being naked or running so she's <laughs> so it's not quite parlor games but it definitely is the kind of I feel like the puppet master I'm sat at home and I'll say Claire will you and so would you and then so do other people come up with challenges for Claire and she's game for anything really so um <laughs> She's gone up to dog walkers and asked if they'll roll down a hill with her, for example. <laughs> and yesterday's show, um, another person on the show is a poet. And she's like, oh, I think you just walked past my friend's house, the one with the red door. And I was like, Claire, go and knock on the door and run away or hide. <laughs> so we have this, um, what do we call it? I used to call it cherry knocking back in Gloucestershire and nobody else in our zoom room called it that they called it knock knock run and knock on knock knock ginger or something knock and run knock knock ginger did you used to do that I don't think we had a name for it I'm sure I've you know I'm sure as a kid I've rung people's doorbells and run away it's a, it's a standard isn't it really <laughs> it doesn't seem to happen as much anymore or and so this was the fun so the things that Claire sort of seems to be up for which I absolutely love is is anything really yeah. and she did run yesterday so that was like she broke one of her own rules really but um is this thing of going uh, so 
she went roller skating, even though she doesn't feel very confident roller skating. And then, then there was this chat, which seems to be an emerging theme, which is the middle aisle oldie or little. So out of this came a would you roller skate down the middle aisle of Aldi? Mm. Um, and so then she's like, well, I might do. And then I might buy a kayak because they always sell, sell weird things like kayaks and other <laughs> things in the middle aisle. So it, it went from this idea of actually going roller skating down the middle aisle of Aldi to actually just going kayaking, which was another thing that she's not done. So the first step of that was then to go over to Beeston, I think it was, to pick up a kayak which was pumped she went there and pumped it up and then sat in the kayak in the middle of a back street in Beeston uh, <laughs> and then a future episode someone who actually makes wooden canoes and kayaks has said that she'll take her out on the canal with a real one mm. so you can kind of get the way that this is emerging can't you sort of like we have these daft ideas in the middle of this zoom thing mm. which leads to something else which leads to something else which leads to something else but the middle aisle of Aldi, I think, might become a sort of motif almost. Because then yesterday she rummaged around, it's completely different, you know, and found a sock dryer. And we were like, what What on earth is a sock dryer? And so, anyway. And then the other part what of this really show. Like? What, what well, it, it was like a circular thing with like, it almost like two pieces of wire or metal with like three sort of bits in it. I think you're supposed to clamp your socks, but we weren't really sure, to be honest. <laughs> we were a bit mystified by this. <laughs> but the middle aisle of Aldi or Lidl is quite a playful thing, I think, in itself, because there's such mm. random stuff in there. You never know what you're going to find, do you? Yeah. Um, and one day, wouldn't it be amazing if they gave us a little bit of sponsorship even to to do more middle aisle stuff? So yeah. I don't know if this has answered your question, but the... <laughs> maybe that thing of challenging ourselves and others to do things they haven't intended to so let's uh, we'll just do a quick bit on the future so you've obviously got you know you've got some idea of how the future is being envisioned for us you seem to have some idea of how you want the future to be envisioned for yourself um how do you how do you see things going forward? I mean, like from a work perspective in terms of the business, what would you like to happen? What do you think is possible? All of that kind of stuff, really. Like, do you, do you think that this could be built out into like a large chain around the country or around the world of people and it's like a paid for thing and you're creating spaces for people to play in? Or do you think this is, you know, you're starting a revolution or what, what's the way What's the way you want to think about this? Yeah, um, so the money side of things is... Uh, an interesting question so like money allows you to have freedom and flexibility yeah so you know the aside from sort of bringing in a decent income and I mean decent enough to not worry about things in a way not not extravagant amounts of money I think the um the dream is to create more surplus so that we can reinvest into other people's ideas mm -hmm. so the more we can be a bit more, well, yeah, the more commercially focused we can be in some of the elements we do, the better I think we'll be at Robin Hood stuff. Uh, I'll give you an example. We're turning one of the shipping containers into something that could produce donuts mm. and other baked goods. Mm. Partly because we start with what, what we know people like. Okay, so we're not trying to convince people to try a new thing yet. We're going, you like donuts. Uh, people will buy donuts. <laughs> donuts are good. Have a donut. <laughs> they're fun, you know. 
Uh, but that isn't the only thing we want to do. We don't want to create like a donut emporium for shipping containers. But we, we know that that is one crucial part of our jigsaw puzzle is to go. We need to actually, um, not that we need to, we want to create fun ways in which people can enjoy baked goods. Yeah. As well as learn to make them and also have a pop-up space in which to try out their own, um, so, so curate that space as well for other people to be able to book it and do their own thing. So enterprise as well. So so some of those parts of our jigsaw puzzle are going a little bit of longevity in a in a space where we can grow and build our own concept, yeah. but it creates space for other people's ideas to come to fruition. So whether it's a I just want to try something this weekend or actually I want to incubate an idea longer term. Uh, I want to test the market for something. So done playfully and creatively, obviously, resourcefully, collaborative stuff um, as a model, really. So if we can, the sort of terminology we're using is if we can take waistbands and turn them into playgrounds. So places which most people would sort of look and think that's a bit of scrubland or doesn't currently live up to its physical potential. Mm-hmm. It could be shopping centres. I mean, we are obviously talking about shipping containers a lot, but equally there's a lot of what's called void space yeah you know empty shops plots of land yeah you can if you start putting those glasses on you will see it everywhere it's it's just there's always reasons why it is as well and actually by even saying can we do something in that space what you do even just by asking that question is make someone else value that space differently yeah so it's kind of like, oh, you want to do something in this? Well, it's going to disrupt this, 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 and this, and this by mm. doing that. You know, so you get into really interesting conversations about status quite, quite often. Mm. Managed decline, as I like to call it. Not always very well managed. <laughs> um, so, so that model, I think, is one that we'd like to be able to operationalize a bit better and run it consistently and well, giving me the freedom to then try something new whilst that's running well. Mm and to create space for other people to try something new. So I, I really do like setting new things up and catalyzing stuff. Whereas there are, luckily for me, other people who do like to do more consistent, regular, structured day-to-day stuff. Mm. So the dream for me would be I've created a vehicle which allows me to constantly be gently disrupting the status quo, bringing in enough money to be able to support other people to do more of what they love. Mm and not feeling precious really about the blueprint of it all so I don't really want to I don't I don't know if the business model would allow this but I don't want to be like the McDonald's of play I just want to go there's a networked approach to this and the more that we share and open source our knowledge in different places yeah let's not be afraid that we have to have ownership of all of this because actually you're constantly creating new things mm-hmm. but actually it's scary to keep constantly creating new things when you've got to write yourself out the picture for yeah. it to succeed yeah does that make sense yeah there yeah it does so when you're doing stuff now do you take donations and or do you charge people how are you how are you operating it do you normally get something for it and then go from there or yeah so we've, we've mostly operated a sort of uh either a funded or some tickets or sales like yeah. if we can get the balance right between it being so what we don't want to do is just work with one type of demographic yeah so sometimes people have more than enough cash in their hand to be able to pay for things and others won't so we need to create that environment where you're not thinking oh no I'm the person getting the freebie here so 
So that does require sort of a funded model or an explicit model, which other people pay more knowing that it supports other people to have a go. So that, that's an interesting, challenging one. Um, the bakery, and thinking more commercially, so we're working with partners to sort of look at how we are more commercial in our thinking, because it hasn't been the number one motivation, to be quite honest. So I think it, I'm at the age now where I'm like, I think I've done enough of the sort of experimentation on how not to run a business. <laughs> so now it's the success part. <laughs> now, now is the bit of going, I want to do, do more of this, but, and I don't even mind the idea, I'm going to say this quite quietly, I don't even mind the idea of dropping dead on the job quite quietly, because I love what I do. <laughs> Children aren't that happy about that notion though. But the, kind of, <laughs> That isn't the issue for me. It's like, I just don't want to have this bumpy kind of cash flow yeah. of what can we get, what can we do this this week, depending yeah. on what's in the bank. You know, so your hazmat suit question or the, you know, of course we might still decide that wasn't the best use of funds, but it's better to be able to go, we have the choice rather than we just couldn't do it. Yeah. Because, you know, we had the money to make some good decisions and it did, turn out that hazmat suits were the right way to go forward with this project um, or you know zorb ball whatever's um yeah. but we don't really have enough flex really in our current way of working to be able to sort of do more inventive imaginative bonkers stuff <laughs> if that makes sense if i get the feeling that you'd love to have a chance at doing some some bonkers stuff I think people like it. So I think, again, go back to what do people like? Mm. As much as they like seeing cardboard and chalk and bubbles and things, I think there is that bit of like, oh, I wouldn't expect in that today. Mm. So it's getting a blend, isn't it, between it's almost like the circus has come to town, but then soon you're going to be the circus. Yeah, yeah, nice. Do you have stores for all your stuff? That, how you, you know, obviously the um shipping container would be a good place to store a lot of stuff but where do you store the shipping container <laughs> well, this is it so <laughs> that that is the constant bit of like if if i was a um so the, the imaginative part of me thinks i want to be a female property developer but not one that is just doing it for extractive capitalistic not mm. that there's anything wrong with people who do do that by the way but that model does seem to be a little bit like this isn't putting money back into the system yeah. in the same way so I think I need to learn the skills so that I'm not just looking to rent space. Hmm. That whole load of us who wouldn't normally consider ourselves to be able to do this um, can, yeah, that we can we can acquire this sort of know-how and the, the knowledge of how to do this for ourselves. Hmm. Because otherwise you just you're always precarious if you're renting. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that seems massive and beyond me, quite honestly. But how can I go from not having any space at all to actually creating more commons for others? That's really what it is. That's really what it is. So I've changed it up a bit. Did you notice? Did you care? Let me know. Please remember to like, share and subscribe to this show. Please become a patron. It's only a quid a month and it'll be such a morale booster for me, honestly. I might do a jig. Give me a sign. Give me a pound. I do want to get to a thousand of these, and the only way I can do that is with you listening, liking, sharing, and offering financial contributions so that we can raise awareness and reach that thousand people. And of course, for any lawyer listening to this, the biggest way that you can help the podcast is by coming on this show. 
It's not scary and it's not stressful and your voice will sound so much better with intro and outro music bracketing it. I'm really interested to hear from anyone in Leeds or from Leeds in whatever industry, sector or role you're in. What is your experience? How do you feel about work? What do you like and not like? What do you do, Leeds? Email this podcast now, workinghourspod at western-studios.com with a short bio and some suggestions of your availability to hashtag BeMyGuestLeads or just send your feedback, questions, comments and queries. You can also follow this show on Twitter at WorkingHours3 and on Instagram at WorkingHoursPodLeads. Next time on Working Hours, I am talking to a fundraiser from a charity. Same Leads time, same Leads channel. Working Hours is presented, edited and recorded by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org.